What we do here is go back, 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 back. back. And welcome into episode six of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. I'm David Statman, joined once again by my good friends Angelo Inglisa and Jake Long. As this week, we go back 31 years to some classic prime NWA action. Shy Town Rumble 1989. Boys, how you guys doing? I'm very excited for this one. You see, you said 31. I'm like, that can't be right. That's only six years before I was born. And then I did the math. I'm like, oh, crap, that is right. <laughs> Damn, we're old. Yeah, you have uh, – or we have 30 creeping up on us very soon. Um, but I, Chi-Town Rumble, I had watched this before um, because I think it was like Dave Meltzer tweeted um, how like one of the best matches ever ended with a, with a roll-up. And I was like, that is absolutely ridiculous. And then I went and watched it, and I was like, oh, that's not so ridiculous anymore. Yeah, exactly. We have, of course, Flair Steamboat, the match that our good friend Jake Long, who is, I know, a huge Dave Meltzer guy. I know you're like one of the biggest Dave Meltzer guys out there. You know what? Uh, no, see, listen, I, I'm, a big, uh, I'm a big Pritchard guy, and you know what he says, right? What, what, what does, does he say? He says FDM. FDM, and I'm going to leave it at that because we are a PG podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course. Oh, PG, course, my butt. We have explicit tags. My PG, butt. my butt, Angelo says. <laughs> Again, you never know when I'm being serious and just talking or I'm trying to make a joke. <laughs> Man, Angelo Angelo is like like two steps away from calling something Spe- malarkey. Speaking of that, I would like to walk back a previous statement that I made. <laughs> um, I realized that last on last week's episode, SummerSlam 2006, I made a comment that was uh, actually incorrect. Um, at one point, I referred to Angelo and Glisa as funny, and uh, I would just like to walk that comment back and say that I was wrong and misguided in that comment, and uh, and I apologize for uh, for anybody that I hurt. So, a, I, a sincere I don't apology. Have for that. <laughs> a sincere apology to each and every one of of Jake Long's many fans. <laughs> he would just disappoint them all in such a way. As, by... we, know, as we know, several people tune into this just for Jake Long. Hey, listen. We had at least one follow or one listener last week that was directly because of me. So, was that your brother? Nope. Thanks, Aunt Tammy, for listening to this. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was member of the Long family. <laughs> but let's 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 get right into this because this was something that once we hit it on the randomizer last week, I was really excited to see because of the match that you mentioned, Steamboat Flare the main event, but then you go back and you look through this card and there are so many just classic NWA guys up and down this card. I mean, you got young sting, you've got the midnight express, you've got Luger, you've got Wyndham, you've got the road warriors. I mean, this is an awesome card with a lot of names on it from top to bottom. So let's kind of jump right into this one. I, it, it, we are at February 20th, 1989 at the, UIC Pavilion, University of Illinois, Chicago. 8,000 people in attendance for the Chi-Town Rumble, NWA, WCW. Just everything about the presentation, the feeling, the way that the the card is put together is so incredibly 80s. It's amazing. It's so much fun to see. You've got Jim Ross, a young Jim Ross, and Magnum TA, a classic 80s NWA legend, on commentary and we start out with 
just a sign of how far in the past we are in pro wrestling. The leadoff match, Michael P.S. Hayes, who is a baby face wearing a giant Confederate flag robe, taking on a guy called Russian Assassin Number 1 from the Soviet Union, who under the mask is a guy named Dave Sheldon from Texas. But he is an evil Russian heel from the Soviet Union. And we lead off with a with a with a 15 minute match between Michael P.S. Hayes and and the Russian assassin. Um, Hayes just constantly playing to the crowd. He's the the fiery baby face, kind of slow paced match. You know, kind of typical of what you would get out of a, a, a low card match in the NWA. A lot of working holds, kind of interspersed every couple of minutes with the occasional we'll shoot somebody off the ropes and and we'll do a spot. Finally, you know, the Russian cuts him off we have the manager hitting a cheap shot at one point finally hayes dodges a shoulder tackle the russian hits the post hayes comes off the rope hits a ddt and he pins him to win in about 16 minutes kind of your just classic what you kind of expect out of a a, a low card singles match out of this era of wrestling so i i want to i want you guys to tell me have you ever seen a 15 minute match where one of the entrance or one of the wrestlers doesn't get an entrance because that's what we got here. There's like, a lot we got of a ton of those. We did. Steamboat didn't even get an entrance in this match and he was in the main event. He won the title tonight. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I, I would like to know what their logic was for that because it's like, like I, I was doing some research because obviously I had never heard of Russian assassin number one. Like I, I didn't think he was like some not WWE all name. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like I didn't think that was like his place. But I was doing some research and I was like, like, you know, like he's not like a jobber, like he's he's a guy. So that that part just really confused me. But Angela, I have a question for you and maybe for David, but he might know the answer. Do you know what the P.S. in Michael Hayes stands for? I do not. David, do you? For purely sexy. (laughs) (laughs) That's and I would just like to say that 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 nickname is perfect. That hair was flowing. Uh, there and there was a lot of that in this card too, the flowing oh hair. Uh, but dude, honestly, I'm I'm gonna be straight up. I was so bored watching this match. All they did was hold each other, and then like David said, you no, know, it's like NWA, like sa- Southern wrestling style at the time. But like, it took 13 minutes to get to a suplex. <laughs> That's not a joke. Hey. 13 it was minutes a hell into the of a match. Suplex. It was okay, a real great. Good looking suplex. Great. 13 minutes in, we got a suplex. At 14 minutes, we got a DDT. <gasps> it was incredible. Hey, nah, boring I, match. I didn't like it. I'll I will say that DDT had a ton of flair. I thought that was a very good looking DDT. That said, I agree with Jake Angelo. completely. This is the Angelo Inglis' DDT corner. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. Um, yeah, that was the one thing I noticed a lot. So, again, my history of wrestling is very modern. I don't have a lot of things pre-2000s in my head. Heck, I don't have a lot of things pre-2005 in my head. Uh, going back to this match, I thought the cool thing was like hearing, oh, Michael Hayes, he was part of the Fabulous Freebirds because one of the names I threw out for this podcast was like a Freebird Rules podcast because there's three of us, obviously, uh, and the Freebirds kind of invented the role of having a three-man stable but rotating in who the tag champions are so you can kind of rotate that out. I would say... I think David's probably our Michael Hayes, the guy that's most likely to go out on a singles uh, on a singles push. Buddy, I'm not wearing a Confederate flag robe in 2020. I'm I sorry. 
<laughs> I didn't say you would. I think that's a very smart decision. Uh, but like Jake said, there's just a lot of rest holds here. Like that that side headlock, their first four minutes are exclusively side headlocks. <laughs> like that's all it is for the first four minutes. I think uh, Michael Hayes opens up the match with a side headlock. And then later on, Russian Assassin reverses it into another side headlock. And that's just the first four minutes of the match. 25% of the match right there is just boom, side headlock. Um, it makes Orton matches look rapid. And Randy Orton has been a guy that we've discussed doesn't exactly have the most exciting or glitzy move pool. He's very consistent and, you know, gets a lot of reaction by doing the least amount of work. But say what you will, the crowd was still excited for this match, even though it was as slow paced, maybe for us. Um, The one other thing I noticed is just Hayes selling the uh, Russian sickle. And those strikes and chokes, I thought he did a good job there. There's some entertainment value there. Um, the ref count, how the ref was counting the pin, he would do like one, <laughs> one, two, three, two, one, two, three. And I thought that was kind of unique. Uh, other than that, though, the DDT I thought was picture perfect. Uh, a lot of flair in that DDT. Just the way Michael Hayes executes it, I mean, not a lot of people could execute a DDT like that. So, okay, yeah, but you're Angela, loving this DDT, 14 dude. minutes. No, it's, like, it's the Miz. The Miz does that two minutes into his 10-minute matches now, and I, he has even more flair and looks great. I'm not disagreeing with you, Jake. This is just me trying to be funny, uh, which obviously you've already established that I am not. So your, let's just your, move your on. Your sense of humor is eight minutes of side headlocks. Four minutes, thank you. Okay, whatever. A lot of side headlocks. I'll say this, though. The Bad Street USA theme song stuck in my head <laughs> all afternoon today. <laughs> Because it's a banger, and 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 one, I, I, aside from the fact that it is really weird, especially like in the current moment that we're living in today, seeing a dude come out wearing a huge Confederate flag robe and being just like the super popular babyface, like this, it's that's weird enough. I mean, Russian assassin number one, the evil Soviet heel. We're like less than two years away from the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So like I kind of wonder what happened to all the all the people that use like I'm the evil Soviet gimmick. What happened to them after that happened? Um, we had one in like 2010. Uh, Vladimir Kozlov. Yeah. Yeah. But like tons of people were put out of business by that. It's <laughs> like now you have to like find another country. I guess like you have to actually follow the news and like see who we're at <laughs> war with now. And I guess, Hey, we, we ended up getting, um, Iraqi sympathizer, Sergeant Slaughter a couple years later. Yeah. I guess, I guess they were reading the news, but one, one other kind of funny note I liked on Russian assassin. Number one, again, he was a guy named Dave from Texas <laughs> and he, before he had this gimmick, he had a gimmick called the angel of death where he used to walk to the ring with a playing a trumpet, playing taps on a trumpet. <laughs> and then I guess presumably would kill the guy, which I sounds find pretty videos cool. of that. That That's sounds great. actually pretty sweet. Wrestling is awesome. So moving on to a bit more entertaining match, at least one in terms of there were some moves in it. Sting, a young Sting, taking on Hacksaw Butch Reed. Sting at this point, they're really trying to get him over. He wrestled in the NWA, WCW, for a couple of years by that point and basically got pushed right away, not necessarily to a world championship level yet, but as kind of the hot up-and-coming young star. And they are really 
getting him over and putting him over as an athlete, this athletic youngster named Sting, who's only been wrestling for a couple of years. And this is back in 1989. Back then, you would have one guy on the entire roster who had a vertical leap that was higher than 25 inches, and he would be the high flyer of the whole promotion. And like the biggest move he would do is maybe he would do like a high cross bot, and then everyone would scream about what a great athlete he was. And that, at this moment in time, was Sting. And so they're putting him over as an athlete. JR is, out, is, is on commentary, comparing him to Magic Johnson. Butch is, is trying to outpower him, and, and Sting is just looking great. And he's running wild, and he's hitting all these moves. Finally, the manager, Hiro Matsuda, who has his own long, you know, long wrestling career and some interesting stories about him, gets involved. He's taking some shots, and it's Sting. Ring, uh, Reed is using chokes, and he's pulling the hair. Puts him in a chin lock for like 10 minutes. Finally, Reed tries to sit down on a sunset flip from Sting. He grabs the ropes. The referee, Teddy Long. Of course, we all love Teddy Long. With great hair. Mm. Yes. Teddy Long, who somehow looked older here than he did 20 years later when he was the general manager <laughs> of SmackDown. Teddy Long sees it. He knocks his hand off the ropes, and that allows Sting to complete the sunset flip and pin him. This match took 20 minutes. This was the second longest match on the car. But we got to experience Teddy Long for 20 minutes. Yeah, I I loved the ending. I was like, like the, the match was good, and I thought it told a good story because it tells us it was like the the quote unquote high flyer versus the powerhouse, so like the athlete versus strength. But then you get down to the end, and like it wasn't really ref interference. It was mostly like the ref writing a wrong smacks his arm and then they roll into the ending but i just want to say that sting's chin could knock a man out on its own <laughs> he looks like he looks was... like kevin he looks like kevin from ed ed and eddie <laughs> <laughs> it is just the most powerful chin i've ever seen like I, I don't know if he does exercises for it or what but it it on its own uh it looks like the uh the crimson chin from uh fairly odd parents. here comes the crimson chin just got a chiseled, <laughs> chiseled jawline. But, I, I mean, like, but uh, apart, you, you talk about it being like the like the high flyer versus the the power guy. And it was a little more than that. It was like like kind of the young athletic up and comer running into sort of the the tough veteran crafty heel, <laughs> and him right. trying to get past that that attack on him. Right, and I don't know. I feel like maybe the ending might have hurt it a little bit. Like like telling that story because it's like oh like ref like the ref had to get involved. But overall, I mean, I, I enjoyed the story, even though again, a lot more rest holds than I you know a lot more rest holds that didn't mean anything than let's say Flair Steamboat later in the night where every hold was doing something. And this match, it was just kind of like oh great here we go another headlock or whatever. So two things before I really discuss the match. One, do you guys remember a time where Sting wasn't cool? Nope. No, no, I don't. Good, because I'm an absolute sting mark, and there is a wrong answer to that question. Uh, two, uh, did you guys hear that they announced the Chicago Bears first-round pick being a fullback that he was in the crowd in attendance for that uh, pay-per-view? No. Yes. I did. Yeah, they, they showed him a ton of times. They did. Oh, they, who was it? The guy, was his name I, I, was Brad, Brad Muster. Yeah, because they, they showed him in Flair Steamboat as well. Yeah. But He's I didn't realize that guy. that was – 
<laughs> yeah, I, I didn't realize that that was the whole thing. First round pick fullback. My have time. How times have changed. That's, uh, that, that's Angelo's like wet dream right there. Having a uh, first round fullback. Uh, no first round fullback. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> But for uh, to start off the match, I mean, you see Sting kind of like they're going into this back and forth, throwing each other off the ropes, and he tries to throw Butch Reed for an arm drag, and Butch Reed blocks it. So he instead flips, repositions, and then does the arm drag, and then hits him with a drop kick follow up. I thought that looked super athletic, really good. I mean, Sting in this match kind of showed me like he's kind of like the template a lot of guys, at least modern guys, mid Carters have now like what you have to be in order to be in the WWE. You have to have some of that athleticism. You have to have moves that show a little bit fl- panache. I think that's a really good word there, panache. Uh but I'm not like sure you if you're have, properly you have... using that word, but it's it's you know, it's you're getting there. There's you have to have like some sort of attitude, uh some uniqueness to your character or how you do things. Uh in addition to being able to do a whole plethora of moves and Sting's athletic ability, uh Allows him to do that, and you see that, I think, a few times in this match. Uh, whereas there is a lot of rest holds, I think those rest holds at least tell a little bit of story. Like, uh, you see uh, Reed's heelish chin lock while he's got Sting on the ground, and he's using the ropes. He's choking him, like, with a full, like, hand choke. Uh, he's using the ropes to get elevation on the choke. He's grabbing the tights to increase the pressure of the choke, or just give Sting a wedgie. I'm not sure which. Uh, but I think both these guys... In, in today's WWE, could still put on a decent match. I thought that Butch Reed looked pretty good. Uh, he definitely sold the powerhouse. Uh, he comes off looking really strong. Sting himself, I mean, he's got some strength. He's got some athletic ability. He hits a superplex in this match. That looks really good. I think that's this match. Either way, I mean, I just thought this... <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it. I mean, I, 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 again, I said I, I really enjoy Sting. I liked what I saw for Butch Reed. Is 20 minutes a really long match for the second match on the card that has no title implications that ends via a controversial roll-up? Maybe. But I definitely d- enjoy this match way more than Michael Hayes versus the Russian Assassin. Yes, this is a, definitely a step up from that first match. We move on to the Midnight Express versus the Midnight Express. only one midnight express can remain this nwa isn't big enough for two midnight expresses loser leaves nwa match between the midnight express bobby eaton and stan lane and their manager mr james e Cornette, against the original midnight express jack victory and randy rose and their manager a young upstart with a terrible ponytail by the name of Paul E. Dangerously. Now, why don't we hear Paul E. Dangerously anymore? I mean, that's just such a great name. How does Mm. a name like that just fall by the wayside? Yeah. He was apparently some dork named Paul Heyman. I don't like that name. He should should probably stick with Paul E. Dangerously. That's pretty cool. And and if he loses this match, I guarantee you he amounts to nothing. A hundred nothing without WCW. hundred percent. I mean, did you see his ring, ring work? His kicks were awful. His punches were awful. He couldn't <laughs> sell. I mean, what kind of wrestling company Terrible. has a room for someone like that? He seemed okay on the mic, but like that only gets you so far. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, like, where's Enzo Amore nowadays? Like, come on. Oof. And he was better on the mic than this guy. This <laughs> now there's a complete take. jobber. What a jobber this guy it's is. It's a guy. But. Again, kind of a little bit of background information. The Midnight Express, famous tag team throughout the 80s. There were like 
38 different incarnations of the Midnight Express. And there were about 700 different wrestlers who at some point were in some incarnation of the Midnight Express. But the classic combo of the Midnight Express, the most famous incarnation of the Midnight Express, was beautiful Bobby Eaton and Mm. Dennis Condry. But the original version of the Midnight Express was Randy Rose and Dennis Condry. So now you have this feud going on, the original Midnight Express, which was Dennis Condry and Randy Rose, versus Bobby Eaton's Midnight Express, Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane, who had replaced Dennis Condry. And you got this feud going on, you know, between, you know, the Midnight Express and the original Midnight Express. Originally, this match was going to be Eaton and Lane versus Randy Rose and Dennis Condry. But Dennis Condry left the NWA like less than a week before this event happened. So at the last second, they replace him with this guy named Jack Victory, who, if you remember, we briefly made a brief appearance a few episodes ago for us at ECW Anarchy Rules 1999. We had a Jack Victory sighting. I think he was in a wheelchair for some reason, and he got beaten up by New Jack. If no, I he, remember, he, no, he got. Uh, he was in the wheelchair, correct? Who who beat him up? Uh, I thought it was New Jack. Oh, Tommy Dreamer's girlfriend, because Dreamer pushes the wheelchair into her, and then she swings the steel chair over his head. You're right. Good memory. Good job, Angelo. Very proud of you. So we have this match. It's Midnight Express and Cornette. They've got the managers involved against the original Midnight Express and Pauly Dangerously. And when you have a match like this where you have the managers specifically in the match as wrestlers, the match is going to inevitably end up being about the managers wrestling. I think a big big part of the story of this match was Jim Cornette is a lot more eager to get into the ring and actually mix it up than Heyman is, but then Paulie dangerously is, and he's a lot better at it. Every time Paul Heyman gets into the ring, he messes something up, or he gets his ass kicked, or he accidentally punches Randy Rose in the face, and it's just a, a whole disaster. Some pretty good tag team wrestling in between all of these weird little spots with the managers getting in and getting involved. A lot of Stan Lane, who was a very good worker, and Randy Rose kind of carrying the weight or a lot of the weight in this match. They both looked really good. Finally, we get hot-tagged Bobby Eaton. He forces Randy Rose to tag in Pauly. We get Cornette and Pauly. Cornette's beating his ass. Finally, <laughs> Paul Heyman tags in Randy Rose, but Cornette rolls out of the way. Beautiful forward roll by Jim Cornette. I mean, you could tell that he was training a little bit. You could tell he got in there and he took some bumps. He was actually looking not that terrible in terms of like like managers wrestling. I've seen a lot worse than than Jim Cornette in this match. Tags in lane, gets the hot tag. They do a this this basically turns into a, a big brawl for the last minute or two of this match. Finally, uh, Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton hit a double flapjack on Randy Rose and pin him in 16 minutes. And as per the stipulation, which was loser leaves the NWA, Randy Rose because he was the man who took the pin must leave the nwa i thought that part was really interesting and i didn't catch it until after the match was over and they start mentioning randy rose and then they mention it later on the card saying that randy rose has already left the nwa i I, with these matches you kind of always think okay so the losing side is gonna go so technically paulie and jack victory could still be a part of the nwa at this time I'm not sure. I I didn't do the research. I don't look into it. I'm not sure if they continued on with the NWA, WCW. I know, obviously, Paul Heyman goes on to work with ECW, but I'm not sure if anything else 
they do anything else in the NWA. Uh, going through this match, Jim Cornette's ring attire is just something to behold. I mean, the red all bo- the red bodysuit and the black trunks, just it's a look. It's definitely a look. But you're right, yes. David. He did uh, he did look terrible when it comes to managers in the ring. He oversold, but I mean, that's what managers are supposed to do. You're supposed to oversell if you're out there as a manager in a wrestling ring. Uh, but you didn't look necessarily bad doing moves or you know selling moves. Uh, victory at this point in time looks very much like he could be Brock Lesnar's dad with that face. It was just, I just, it was the first thing I look, at, I look at him. I'm just like, that could be, a, that could be Lesnar's dad. Just that face. Uh, but the guy I really liked in this match, surprisingly was Bobby Eaton. Um, I liked his strikes. His strikes are look really good. I mean, they're no, obviously they're no Shane McMahon strikes who is the best striker in the game, but Bobby Eaton was throwing some haymakers out there and I thought they looked really good. Um, there's also the spot, um, I can't even read my darn, darn hair in, but he's involved in another spot. I thought his missile drop kick. <laughs> I got to write better, honestly. I'm sorry, guys. Do you handwrite your notes? Yes. Hey, hey. Who are you, Mick Foley? Dude, I, uh, whatever reason, I like handwriting notes better than I like typing notes. But anyway. What do you think I do? Bobby Eaton's missile drop kick, though, was another just another thing that just looked really good, really incredible. The way Eaton carried himself in the ring, I thought was looked really good too. Like the way he's presenting himself as a big burly striker, Stan lane. I could take him or leave him. Honestly, I thought his kicks looked very interesting because you don't see a lot of that sidekick to the midsection stuff nowadays. Uh, but him and Randy Rose do a good job of carrying this match for the most part. There is a lot of rest holds. That's the one thing it was hard to get used to throughout this car is just the amount of rest holds that you see versus today's wrestling. I mean, today's wrestling seems to be a little bit more off pace, a lot more variety in the moves, whereas these matches can, if you're not paying attention, can kind of start blending together a little bit. But overall, I thought the story that Cornette and Paulie were telling, uh, that's kind of what makes the money here. It's kind of funny seeing those two interact, how hyped up Cornette is to get in the ring with Paulie. Uh, Paulie being the typical heel of avoiding everything. Uh, Paulie punching Randy Rose in the face and then just going on for about a minute, just saying, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and just seeing those facial expressions was kind of fun too. Um you're right, David. This was a very solid tag team match. I think the story was really fun. Um, again, just a different flavor than what we're used to. So I'm going to lean in a little bit here and say, uh, nah, nah, this match was boring too, honestly. Like, I like, I get it. I know it's the 80s, but like, like Angela's talking about missile drop kicks, and we were 12 minutes into the match before we got a freaking, uh, before anybody left the ground for anything. Like, I mean, I don't know if I'm like spoiled because I've watched too much NXT or, or or New Japan or something, but come on, like give me a little something. The best part of the match was was definitely Cornette and Paulie, but I was just I, I was almost snoozing at this point because I didn't like the first match. The second match was cool because it had Sting, but like that was all rest holds again. And this match. I knew how it played out because I knew Paulie and and I knew what happened with them in the OG Midnight Express. It just did not do it for me. So that actually led me to to this. What do you guys think would be the reaction today to this exact match? So let's say we let's say we're in WWE, okay, and this is the third match on a pay per view with this stipulation between uh, I don't know maybe like who who's a, like the New Day versus the New New Day or something like that. With, with new, two, two man newer day. Yeah. <laughs> that is a gimmick. Can we <laughs> new podcast <laughs> name? 
so what do you think would be the reaction today to something like that? No, I mean, people would probably think that it was a boring match, but I think, I think the, the general approach to putting together a match is much different today than it was then. Back then, people wanted, like, when they were putting together, they wanted to have those kind of rest holds and those long periods where there's not that much going on to make what few kind of big moves are in it feel that much bigger. But in practice, and that, that was the philosophy, I think in practice it meant a lot of matches that were kind of boring. But that was the philosophy then, and it has changed now. Right. It's I, For me, the thing I go back to is thinking about how it just has evolved since then. And I think the evolution is kind of beneficial for wrestling in that way because as you go farther and farther, you have to get more creative. Back then, this was what passed because this was all people knew. Or it comes from a style of wrestling that was even, we'll say, even slower paced than what they saw on this pay-per-view. But you hear these crowds, and these crowds are extremely passionate watching this. This is more of a... Definitely a hotter crowd than what we see today with all the smart marks that there are in the world. But... The people generally enjoyed this, and this was seen as something I'd probably see say more in line with a circus. It was an attraction. You get to see these big, strong guys do a bunch of kind of athletic moves with each other, and maybe you get a cool spot. And like, um, you see Bobby Ian kind of dropped onto the rails in this one. That was the note I could not read. So happy to get that one back on. But <laughs> you're right; it's just kind of like eh, for us that have experienced the new age of wrestling or this era of wrestling it's boring for us because we've seen how wrestling evolves and how much better it gets back then this could easily have blown your mind but nowadays it's not because we've seen a plethora of new moves a plethora of new styles new guys new gimmicks and i think that kind of plays into this is just what what they had back then this is exciting for then but obviously it's not something that's going to track now. Right. Yeah. And the only, the only other thing that I really mentioned was uh, Paul Heyman has been living the same gimmick since 1989, baby, at least it is David, what'd you say? 31 years later and Paul Heyman is still doing the same shtick today and, and it still I, works and it's, and it is over, baby. <laughs> so I guess now, before we get into these title matches, I'll kind of say this point. I mean, you can make the same case for later on because there's still some guys on the card that are absolute studs. But I think what I took away from these three opening matches and the entire card in general is this. The guys that were great back then, I think could still thrive in today's WWE because a guy like Flair, and we'll get to him, how he adapted his style from 1989 to we saw him in 2006 still look great. And just the way he was able to adapt, I think the guys that are great in this era, a guy like Sting, a guy like Flair, a guy like Steamboat, I think those are guys that are easily translatable to the modern era. Whereas I think a lot of the guys, that even the guys that we don't see on TV, I think if you throw those guys back that, back now, back to 1989, instant megastars, because they will be able to do so much more than what the current guys in the ring can do. Yeah, agree with that one. Agree with that one. So we move on to the first of four title matches on this card. NWA World Television Championship is on the line (laughs) as Rick Steiner takes on Mike Rotunda of the Varsity Club, which was a 
we're, we're going to see the rest of that faction later on tonight. But this is a couple of singlet guys <laughs> having an amateur wrestling match. Of course, Rick Steiner, that was kind of the Steiner brothers gimmick for a long time, really until Scott Steiner became big Papa pump. That was the Steiner brothers gimmick was that they were the great amateur wrestlers from the university of Michigan who were awesome athletes. And of course, Mike Rotunda before he went to the WWF and became an evil tax accountant and then became <laughs> Bray Wyatt's dad. He himself was a very, very good amateur wrestler at Syracuse university. Well, technically so we got, here he is, Bray Wyatt's dad. Bray is two years old at the time of this pay-per-view. Was Bray Wyatt alive at this point? Yes, he Ooh, was. I had to go was. back and look. The gimmick well, has already been established. He wasn't, he wasn't Bray Wyatt then yet. He was still Wyndham Rotunda at that point. <laughs> so I, I am still correct. I have still never been wrong <laughs> on this podcast. But we have – this is literally – I mean, like, you don't – there's not really a whole lot to say about this match because it is just, like, two singlet guys doing amateur wrestling. So it's literally my favorite type of wrestling match. And – Again, like you won't see, you would not see a match like this in the WWF until like maybe 2000, 2001, something around then is when like the earliest you might have gotten a match like this in the WWF. Like, what? Kurt Angle. Yeah, yeah the Kurt Angle Benoit, Benoit match. match. At, yeah, at, yeah, which, yeah. Which WrestleMania was that? Was that 2001? Oh, shoot. Um, it was, was 17, it was wasn't some, it? It was somewhere around there, 2001 ish. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we just watched it like a month ago, right? Yeah, a few months ago. Um, that is like the, like, so that is like 12, 10 to 12 years in the future, but the earliest to see a match like this in the WWF. But it's, again, it's just kind of a straightforward wrestling match. And I guess kind of the story of this match is that Rick Steiner, I guess part of the gimmick is he's a great wrestler. He's super talented. He's an awesome athlete, but he's also super dumb. He's just <laughs> kind of a dumb guy. And that makes him relatable because, I mean, you know, a lot of baby faces are made to like aren't, aren't presented as being stupid, but do stupid things. <laughs> Rick Steiner is just kind of a dumb guy. And I think that makes him relatable. At least the character of Rick Steiner is kind of a dumb guy. At one point, he hits a big power slam on on. I, I put down IRS in my notes a bunch of times. He wouldn't be I, he, he'd become IRS for another few years, but he hits a big power slam on rotunda at one point and it looks like he could have won the match with that but he decides instead to get up and kind of bark to the crowd a bunch of times and then tries to pin him late and he kicks out at two finally towards the end of the match the evil kevin sullivan comes out and threatens rick steiner's dog distracts him <laughs> I, I i again i almost said irs because i wrote irs in my notes rotunda takes over rick ends up turning it around puts him in a sleeper hold takes it down to the ground and then while he has Rotunda in the sleeper hole, it ends up that his shoulders are on the mat. And I guess he doesn't realize it because, again, Rick Steiner, at least the character, kind of a dumb guy, doesn't realize that Mike Rotunda is on top of him. He's got his shoulders on the mat and he gets pinned. And the new television champion is Mike Rotunda. So Big Papa Pump was introduced to the wrestling world in this match. And I know that it's Rick Steiner wrestling, but I just want to talk about how ridiculous Scott Steiner was at some points in his life. Because whenever you see like full roided up Scott Steiner, it is a sight to behold when he would do like the, the flexing. And uh, it looked like this episode from SpongeBob where SpongeBob's or uh, Larry's muscles like stacked on top of each other. That's literally <laughs> what Scott Steiner would end up looking like. 
But as far as this match goes, it was a pretty good. <laughs> you guys are gonna yell at me, but I actually enjoyed this match because I like that shoot style. David was just talking about uh, Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit, and I, I love it whenever two guys are just. If that's the whole story of the matches, they're just shoot wrestling amateur style. I it's cool. I like that. What I don't like is whenever that's not what they're doing, or when they they act like that's not what they're doing, but in reality they're just like holding each other a lot, and the crowd's like screaming about it. I, that just doesn't make any sense. This match it made sense to me, and I I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of IRS, aka uh, Mike Rotunda, but um, yeah. I thought, it was, I thought it was a decent little match. It's weird to see Rotunda and then look at Bray and think, <laughs> wow, those two are directly related because I you, I don't see a lot of resemblance between the two. Uh, even when the mic work, you get to see Mike Rotunda uh, get interviewed later on. And yeah, he's fine. Yeah, he's like got some passion in his voice. But his delivery just feels weird because he keeps saying Steiner, Steiner, Steiner like over and over again in his promo. It comes off as a weird delivery. Uh but anyway, again, I, I I agree with you too. I thought the style of this match, more of a shoot style, traditional 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 wrestling match, was very fun and exciting. It's a lot of stuff that I was taught while I was wrestling for like middle school and high school. I thought the single leg takedown was picture perfect, even though you had Mike Rotunda <laughs> grab the ropes. Uh, but that snatch, that quick snatch. I mean, Steiner had that snatch going. Uh, but the Great weird snatch. <laughs> the weird thing. The weirdest thing about this match is that did you know that Rick Steiner is a real estate broker? Yes. Like and currently? Scott, and Scott yes. Steiner owns a bunch of Shoney's restaurants in Georgia. <laughs> uh, you did tell me that before. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently, like, brand. if you, like, walk into one of his Shoney's, like, you walk into his Shoney's, and there's, just, like, a huge picture of, like, Big Papa Pump flexing. <laughs> oh, man. I need to go to one now. That's shirtless That's... Big Papa Pump. <laughs> Don't forget Steiner Math. Steiner Math is a great. We can't mention the Steiners and not mention Steiner Math. Who who wears chain mail on their heads <laughs> unironically? Uh, I, uh, like, I mean, other than like cosplay uh, guys? Like <laughs> Yeah, I was gonna like like King Aragorn of Gondor. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh that's that's it. And Scott Steiner. So back, <laughs> back to the match. Scott Steiner didn't even wrestle, but I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, all right. So well, back, yeah, I mean, Jake. Oh, or I, I got, uh, yeah. So a few other things. I thought the abdominal stretch reversal, like you see uh, Rotunda put Steiner in abdominal stretch, use the ropes, kind of creates a little, a little bit more leverage. Uh, and then you see Steiner reverse into a pin combination. I thought that looked kind of fun. Cool. Uh, Rotunda had a crossbody, and for a guy that size hitting a crossbody back then, I'm sure the entire crowd's minds were blown. <laughs> you also had a power slam by Steiner. Again, just seeing two guys be able to throw each other around like that, it's good to see that there is some evidence of modern wrestling back then because that was that made this match exciting. It was the first match on the card that was really hooked your attention. Uh, but Kevin Sullivan, you leave that dog alone. Because that's a lot of cheap heat you got for me, Mister. Because oh man, if you hurt that dog, I could stand. Sullivan, I could stand Kevin heel Sol tactics, but if you harm a dog, you are just evil, Mister. Kevin uh, Sullivan, his entire career was basically like did some iteration of being like an evil satanic devil worshiper gimmick. <laughs> so he would not be above just murdering a dog to 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 help his friend win a match. He'd probably do that anyway. 
<laughs> he do it for kicks. Hey, but, before before we move on, I just want to say one thing. Um, I, I wrote it down because I didn't know if David was going to mention it or not. So right before this match, we had a Ric Flair promo, and uh, it just it really brought to light something for me. That these promos were not scripted in any way whatsoever. Like they're going out and like they're pretty much they pretty much know they have a topic and then they just talk. And it was very clear with Ric Flair because you could see he would be saying things and like trying to process the next thing he wanted to say while he was still saying the other thing. And a lot of times it could end up in in him repeating himself or saying the same things in like seven different ways. But it's Ric Flair, so it was cool regardless. It was and he damn just has good. to say he just has to say woo all the time and everybody forgets that he's cutting a promo about yeah. something. But I definitely noticed that they were not scripted, at least the backstage ones were not scripted in any way. I prefer yeah, that Ric Flair promo, it... though, to what we saw from Hulk at WCW 94. <laughs> like, that was just awful to listen to. At least with Ric Flair, he's got some energy to his voice. He is excited. He is energetic. He is passionate. He is saying, uh, actually, I think I have a quote in here from that promo. Whether you like it, haha, or you don't, learn to love it. And is that just not great heel character i mean come on you might not like me but guess what i'm your champion so you better learn to love it so i i I enjoyed that flair promo yeah and it's it's it is funny to see how it's funny how it works that the completely unscripted promos where it's just these guys talking off the top of their heads end up being generally a lot better than the ones you have in wwe where they have to write off a script well, yeah, kind of it's emotional. It's emotional because they can put their own feelings into it, and it's kind of like a. Actually, here's a very niche, uh, niche mention I'm going to include. It's kind of like Daniel Day Lewis, where it's like he gets into such a character that it doesn't really matter. Like, <laughs> I'm going to mention one of my favorite scenes because I talk about the scene every time I can. And there will be blood. There's the milk, uh, the I drink your milkshake scene. That is one of the most. That's it's one of the dumbest scenes ever him with the sound effects and everything but it works because you're like oh man like i believe him when he says these things same thing with wrestlers like when you have roman have to go out and cut the i'm the big dog no human says those things okay this is my yard now you sound like an old man telling the kids to get off of it like it just doesn't work but these guys like you believe it they flair legitimately is fiery and wants to fight so it's a lot more believable yeah and I, I am constantly screaming quotes, Daniel Day-Lewis quotes from There Will Be Blood. Around the house <laughs> I drink your milkshake. I a, drink it up. A bastard in a basket. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of these, like, un, I guess, uh, off-the-head promos, we get one after this with the Road Warriors. And the Road oh, Warriors yeah. <laughs> are awesome. I mean, they, they are, are awesome. just. I, I, that was so the one thing. Awesome. I, that's literally the note I have. Road Warriors are awesome because guess what? <laughs> they are mean. cool. They are wearing spiked shoulder pads. You have Paul <laughs> Ellering's excellent delivery talking about violence. Uh, you have Hawk and Animal just acting like two madmen that want to murder whoever that they're going to face, which is the Varsity Club. And it's just a great three, five minutes. I think that's kind of what makes this pay per view. Uh, must watch is not necessarily the matches, but seeing how some of these guys are on the mic. Like we got Flair a little bit right before this. We're getting the Road Warriors now, and seeing the guys that can really put on a show just with their words—that's what makes these matches, I think, a little bit better, and what makes the Road Warrior match 
a lot more interesting because we see the character of these guys. We don't just see them in the ring doing moves. We see who they are backstage. And backstage, these two are murderers. And it's hmm. cool. Yeah. There's a reason why the Road Warriors were like the biggest tag team ever. Like like the biggest drawing oh, yeah. and most popular tag team. Absolutely. Ever. But yeah, w- before we move on to that match, one last thing about the Steiners match, uh, because Jake, you kind of alluded to it. This was, in fact, the first ever appearance of Scott Steiner in WCW at ringside. Hasn't even wrestled a match for WCW yet, but at ringside here for his brother at the Chi-Town Rumble. He had been wrestling for about two and a half years up until that point, kind of regionally, but this was the first time on any sort of national stage that anyone would have seen Scott Steiner. So that, that in and of itself is a very notable thing hmm. from this show because obviously he became a big, big star. But we move on to the second of four championship matches tonight. NWA United States Heavyweight Championship. Barry Windham defending against one of the Miami Hurricanes football team's greatest sons, Lex Luger. Now, in pro wrestling, there's a few different kinds of guys, a few different kinds of archetypes. There are guys who are great workers. There are guys who are great talkers. And then sometimes you have body guys, guys who are there because they have great bodies. And Lex Luger was the king of all body guys. Lex Luger was never, never a, not a bad worker, but never a great worker. He wasn't a bad talker, but he wasn't a great talker. But the guy looked like the son of God. <laughs> Lex Luger was an Adonis, and he was pushed everywhere he went. He was at the top of the card everywhere he went because he looked like a guy. Hey, David, um, can you just tell me, how do you feel about Lex Luger? I like Lex Luger. I've always been a Lex Luger guy. <laughs> I can tell. Sounds I've like always it. liked Lex Luger. I will... I will I, I'll say this, one of my favorite wrestling moments of all time, ever period, was a Lex Luger match. It was Lex beating Hulk Hogan on Nitro to win the WCW championship in 96 because the crowd is going so insane. And the you know Tony Schiavone is screaming his head off. Hogan never lost, like Hogan never put anybody over ever. Lex puts him in the torture rack, and Hogan taps out. The fans are going crazy. They're throwing things into the ring. They're going insane. Shivani is screaming his head off, and when Lex wins the match, he like drops Hogan on the ground and jumps up on the turnbuckle and starts jumping around and celebrating like he just won the Super Bowl. It feels like it is the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity, and it is one of my favorite moments in wrestling history. And then he lost the title like five days later. <laughs> so, still awesome. so here's something I wasn't expecting. I actually didn't mind Lex. I actually would say I liked Lex in this pay-per-view. Even though the match itself isn't necessarily a standout, um, he's juiced as all hell. I mean, the guy is just swole. Big freaking swole. swole. Um, the crowd is absolutely crazy for him. Uh, he hits a military press on Wyndham, who is not really, who's not a small guy. Like He just has the guy, uh, Wyndham, in the air. Perfect control, does the military press, crowd goes nuts for that. Um, the end was interesting because he doesn't look strong necessarily at the end. Uh, he eats a uh, belly-to-back suplex from Wyndham, and Wyndham's got his shoulders on the mat. Luger's got his shoulders on the mat. Luger gets his shoulder up. 
and Luger becomes champion because Wyndham did it. I thought that was an interesting finish. Um, he doesn't necessarily look strong coming off that kind of finish. But the uh, promo he cuts at the end, kind of just a blue face, baby face promo backstage where he's like, this is for all the people that were believing in me and all that. I mean, I think the reason why Luger ends up being a guy that gets pushed to hell is because the character that he's playing, which is just this juiced up nice guy, is kind of who he was. He is a juiced up kind of nice guy. And I think that's kind of what makes his character throughout this entire period and why he gets pushed and why he gets popular is because he's not playing a role that isn't him. He's playing Lex Luger is genuinely playing Lex Luger. Um, yeah. Yeah, Dave, you, you haven't gone through the match yet, have you? Well, I mean, Angelo pretty much told us how the match went. <laughs> um, I, I did, I, I will say this, I, I thought I thought this was a pretty good match. Barry Windham is sort of one of the forgotten big stars of the 80s, a guy who was considered at the time throughout the 80s to be one of the top, top, top tier workers. And I thought there was some good storytelling in this match. Um, Barry Windham, who was a big striker, big right hand, that was one of his trademarks, tries to punch Lex in the face, misses, hits the ring post, and his hand starts bleeding. I don't know if that was like real, like his hand was really bleeding or how they they faked that or something, but he sells it like he broke his hand, and that kind of affects the way, he, he sells that throughout the match, and it kind of affects the way he uses his offense throughout the match, and I really appreciated that. I thought it was really good storytelling and really good selling from Wyndham. And then, Angelo, you mentioned the finish. A big German suplex, bridging German suplex from Wyndham. His shoulders are on the mat. So are Lex's. They're counting the pin. Lex gets his shoulder up. And Wyndham, even though he hit the move, doesn't get his shoulder up. I've never been a huge fan of this type of finish. But you do see it sometimes. Just because I feel like, I mean, that should apply every single time somebody does like a bridging suplex. But it only it only does when it's supposed to be the finish. Like you don't you're never counting. It's only it's only when they're like, okay, we're gonna do this this time. We're gonna care about it this time and this time only. Right. But for like example, they, they've Gable sort of done it. When Gable hits it, his, his he's like bridging his neck, so he's not having shoulders down. But you're right, there are moments where people do have their shoulders down still. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of they've done this finish a couple of times in NXT recently, and they most recently did it at TakeOver a couple last weekend, maybe. Um, the women's championship match where they did uh, Charlotte has Rhea Ripley in the in the uh, figure eight, and then um, Io Shirai comes in and hits her off the, off the top rope and pins her. But like, Charlotte was on top of her doing the figure eight. So why aren't you counting the pin for her? She had the move in first. Why is EO winning the match? Because she came in and pinned her after. Like, I've never liked that type of finish. Always kind of rankles me a little bit. Like, it, it's, it's a little bit too clever by half. You know what I mean? That, that's the way I feel. I mean, as somebody, somebody who is an official's advocate, um, for those of you that are listening, I, I also officiate basketball. So one of the things that I hate to see is an incompetent ref. And whenever I see incompetent ref spots, I just hate it. I also hate whenever I see a ref get hit, like with a single punch and go down for 10 minutes. Uh, it just, it riles me up. Refs are not weak. Refs are people. Um, the, <laughs> when I was watching this, there was at one point a spot where Luger put Wyndham in a sleeper hold. And I think it was JR that said, a new weapon for Lex Luger, the sleeper hold. 
<laughs> and I couldn't help but think, did it take him that long to figure out how to put somebody in a sleeper? I'm I'm picturing I'm picturing Lex like sitting in front of his TV watching like hours and hours of like Rowdy Roddy Piper tape and then finally at like four o'clock in the morning like taking out a notepad and being like oh a sleeper hole (laughs) before he was applying it on the arm he was putting the arm in a sleeper he's like no that's not right. And then um, at one point there was a, a comment by I, – I can't remember if it was JRTA, but they said, uh, could it be Luger or Sting to carry on uh, wrestling in the future? And I was like, man, that is quite a statement because you could argue that both of them did. You yeah. know, I don't, I don't know how many people who didn't watch – me included until I went back and rewatched it all – really understood what Lex Luger was to wrestling in the early 90s. And just how how over he was at certain points, and how good he was. Um, you have the, the the rumble spot when him and uh, oh shoot, Brett. Yeah, I was about to say Sean, and I knew that was yeah, wrong. Was yeah, whenever him and Brett go over at the same time, um, you have the spot that you were talking about when he wins the title. You know, really carrying it. Then you got Sting versus the NWO, which was the defining story of WCW. Uh, I just, I thought that was um, also, I also am an English teacher, so I have to appreciate the foreshadowing, uh, even though I don't think it counts because nobody knew what was going to happen, but uh, really interesting that they made that comment about Sting and Luger carrying wrestling, and it actually ended up being true. Yeah. They did hit on a couple of those young guys that they wanted to push and wanted to book as stars. They did hit on a couple of them. Now, I mean, WCW... Did miss on some. Anybody else? <laughs> if anybody remembers Eric Watts, he sucked. He did not become a superstar. But they hit Sting and they hit on Luger. I still I can, only, I can only think of David Arquette, even though I know that was like 2000. That's all I can think about right now. Yeah, I'm thinking like around this time. It's what like I know. the next couple years. Like, hey, this was great. Steamboat Flare, a masterpiece. But 1990, 91, 92, not the best times for uh, for WCW. Who was who was the WWE guy who everybody he wrestled a match with Brett, everybody loved it, and then he sucked forever. That the infamous Tom McGee. Tom McGee, the Tom yeah. McGee tapes. Yes, they, uh, but like that that kind of blew out of proportion more than anything because like like infamously WWE like would just never let anybody like they hid the tape and they would never <laughs> let anybody see the match. Like Colt Cabana did a whole podcast on Tom McGee. And like, he said that back when he worked at WWE, when he was like a jobber for WWE for like six months in 2012 or whatever it was, he said like back then you could ask the office for like any tape of like any match or any show and they would send it to you. I mean, this was before the network. Yeah. Um, They would send it to you no matter what. Except, he asked for the Tom McGee Bret Hart match, and they said no. That was the one that they would not let him see. That's got to be like learning to wrestle a broomstick, you know. Like, 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 you know, everybody says that about Bret, how he could have a match with a broomstick. That was probably the closest that we uh, that we ever got. Yeah, and supposedly, as the story goes, or at least the way some people tell the story, that was how Vince knew that Bret was, you know, that, that Bret had to be yeah. pushed and had to be like a top guy. Yeah. Because he was so good that he made Tom McGee, who sucked, look like a okay. god. And they thought that Tom McGee was the next Hulk Hogan. 
So I know nothing about Tom McGee, but just the name Tom McGee makes me sa- makes me skeptical of his wrestling ability. Wait, hold on. They they put that tape on 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 the network, right? Yeah, that was a huge deal. Oh, and you got to go watch it. You got to yeah. go watch it. The Tom McGee Bret Hart was a huge deal. They did a whole thing on it on the WWE yeah. Network. I want to say last year, maybe two years ago. And basically, for context, Tom McGee, it was like a like they were trying to give him a tryout because he looked like a god, and they were like, "Man, he could be good. Put him in the ring with Bret." He had a really good match with Bret, and then never could do anything ever again because Bret Hart carried him like a backpack through that match. Yeah, so the like, match was so great. The, the match was, yeah. The match was apparently so great and just absolutely tore the house down that Vince was like, he's the next, like Tom McGee's the next Hulk Hogan. And he just was absolute trash. Well then. Moving on. We have two matches left on the card. Another title match. The NWA World Tag Team Championship is on the line. The Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, with their manager, Paul Ellering, taking on the Varsity Club, Kevin Sullivan, and a guy I've always been a fan of, Dr. Death, Steve Williams. And Angelo talked about the whole the, the, the Road Warriors, great on the mic. Paul Ellering, one of the all-time great managers, one of the all-time great talkers. And in the ring, Hawk and Animal, they were magic. They were dynamite. This is a great tag team. They look awesome in this match. Hawk is just whipping ass. Animal is handing out power slams like candy. Finally, the evil Kevin Sullivan, who is always just an evil character and an evil guy, hits Animal with a chair. The varsity club's in control. Hawk gets the hot tag. He comes out like a house of fire. He's whipping ass. And then hits Kevin Sullivan with a flying clothesline and pins him. They do kind of a weird fake-out finish because at the same time, Dr. Death is on the side beating up Animal, and he's pinning Animal at the same time. And they, the referee counts the three, but because Hawk is Hawk and uh, and Kevin Sullivan are the legal men, obviously they win. But they've just sort of got Doctor Death pinning him over here for some reason. So they do some weird fake out finish, but it doesn't matter. Shortest match of the night, eight and a half minutes. Road Warriors still the tag team champs. So this is kind of where another thing that kind of bugged me with the whole pay per view is very apparent, and that's with all the pin uh, chicanery there's just a lot of false finishes or odd standout finishes like lots of roll-ups lots of ref involvement lots of misdirection and not that i don't appreciate it but again when we have been used to like this era of wrestling where it's not dominated by a lot of pin scandals it's mostly dominated by cool moves uh it it's weird to watch i know that uh Couple about a month ago at this point, Darby Allen had uh, some leg lock pin combination that would fit right in with what this period is. But I, I don't. I think that there are too many of these weird pin scenarios for just this one card. I mean, let's going through the card. You saw it. Uh, Michael Hayes hits a DDT, so that's a finisher win. Sting beats Butch Reed. That was a roll up. Uh, Midnight Express defeats the original Midnight Express via a pin. So that's another straightforward. But then you get Rotunda winning while he's in a sleeper. You get Lex Luger winning after a German suplex to him. Uh, Road Warriors pick up a W here while uh, Animal's getting pinned. Uh, then you have... Then we'll get to the main event with Steamboat Flair, but we see pin shenanigans there as well. It's just too much of these weird pin scenarios. And I think that kind of yeah. 
waters down everything, so to speak. I think if, like, let's say it's just a few of the matches, maybe two or three at most on the card, fine. But there are five yeah. matches on here with a bunch of pin shenanigans, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's distracting because I think this match, even though it was the shortest match on the card, I enjoyed it. I mean, you have this classic heel team. I don't like Kevin Sullivan, but I will admit he looks better on this match than he did in WCW in 94 against Mick Foley. Uh, Animal and Hawk look great in the ring. They're selling everything. They're selling their brutes. Uh, the Animal versus Steve Williams power off in the beginning of this match. Steve Williams had a look. I'll, I'll say this. Ah. Steve Williams looks like he could be an absolute guy. Uh, that strength off was really cool. Animal power slamming him. Impressive. Uh, and then you have the hot tag to Hawk, and Hawk just clears house. This was an exciting match. They got a lot in this eight and a half minutes. But again, the, these pin predicaments are just i think they did too much uh so if angelo if you love dr death i have something and i'm not going to repeat it on here because i i want to maintain our rating but i just encourage you to look up uh is it carl anderson or luke gallows it's luke gallows angelo just write this down and look up luke gallows dr death story oh boy and it is you you want to talk about storytelling it is magnificent. It's it's the everlasting memory of of Doctor Death that I have. I have that memory and the brawl for all memory. Oh God! <laughs> Where Bart Gunn called up, uh, I can't. I, it wasn't Vince. I think it might have been Pritchard. Actually, he called up and he was like, "So, uh, like, because WWE thought Doctor Death would win the the brawl for all, and Bart Gunn was like, "So, what if I knock him out?" And they're like, "Oh, whatever. Like, don't worry about it." And then Bart Gunn showed up and, and like legitimately knocked him out. And everybody was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then Bart Gunn got destroyed by Butterbean. But yeah, I mean, the Brawl for All, which was just, Angelo, do you know what the Brawl for All was? I do not. So you guys, like, right now, you guys are on one of those tangents oh, where I'm just sitting here for the ride. We need to do a Brawl. So the Steve Williams, like, I'm not sure whether this is, like, absolutely scandalous that Steve Williams is actually a horrible person on the backside or there's just some weird stories with him. No. So the Brawl for All, this was 1998, I think. WWE signs Dr. Death Steve Williams, who, you know, he was a big star in Japan, great wrestler, and he had a reputation as being like a real-life super tough guy. And so as a way of getting him over and kind of piggybacking off the success of the UFC, they put together this shoot-fighting tournament within the WWF called the Brawl for All, where it was like an eight-man, I think, tournament, and it, they were actually like just straight up like MMA style shoot fights. Of course, none of these guys are actual MMA fighters. I think they, I think they tried to get Dan Severin to do it, and he was like, like he refused to do it because he was like an actual MMA fight, like actual UFC champion. I can't remember, but um, it was it was devised as a vehicle to get specifically to get Doctor Death over as like a real life tough guy, and then set him up as like a like a main event push and then he gets knocked out in the second round by bart gun <laughs> and, and, and then the, it just it was a disaster for everybody involved i'm reading the but Wikipedia, that, i'm reading the wikipedia page apparently it was because he tore it tore his hamstring yeah oh what he got knocked out regardless he got knocked the hell out <laughs> it, but, and but that's and not even it, the luke gallows story yeah but then in the end they decide like so Bart Gunn wins, and then they decide to put him in a boxing match with Butterbean at WrestleMania, and he gets 
instantly murdered because Butterbean is like a pro boxer with like a hundred fights. And then, so nobody gets over. Like a bunch of people get in these fights and a bunch of people get injured and nobody gets over in any way, <laughs> shape or form. It's How's that any different than what they're doing now? Disasters ever. <laughs> that I mean, was at entertaining. Least, at least people are worked punching each other now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i mean anyway refocusing because david we have sidetracked a lot today <laughs> i'm blaming you can't on tell david. the story of dr death without the brawl for all i'm just gonna i'm gonna blame it on david and act like i didn't contribute um yeah i i mean i thought it was a classic road warriors match you know they come out being super cool wearing the uh spiked shoulder pads which are still cool in 2020 i just want to make that known i don't own any but I would not mind it, you know. You and should teach in I, some. What's that? You should teach in some. Just get spiked shoulder pads to teach in them. Oh, my gosh. You talk about intimidating. Those kids would listen to everything I said uh, <laughs> or laugh me out of the door or one or the other. But I don't know. Again, just nothing really special about it. I don't know. I just I, – I think I watched this whole card just wait. Like I watched it because we're, we, we're going to talk about it, but I watched it to get to, to Flair Steamboat. And like while I was watching this match, I was like, "This isn't Flair Steamboat," pretty much the whole time. So, yeah, we've watched six matches so far, and you know, we kind of, you know, I I think I'm a little more forgiving on some of these matches maybe than Jake is, but we probably all agree that these are all various levels of mediocre, boring to fine. Yeah, agree. Then we get to Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair uh... in the main event. I was really excited to watch this match because, I mean, if, if you really kind of know about history and you know about, like, great matches, the Steamboat Flare series in 89 is considered to be one of the greatest series of matches in the history of wrestling. And number one, maybe up until we got, like, Kenny Omega versus Sokata a couple years ago. And this is the main event of this show, Chi-Town Rumble, Ricky Steamboat against the world champion Ric Flair for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Came in knowing that this was supposed to be a classic match, and it absolutely didn't disappoint in any way, for me at least. No. Great match. Even with, uh, I guess with the time period, the, you still notice that there's a lack of move diversity. However... This is absolutely worthy of that five star rating that Dave Meltzer get it because I did a look at like uh, the star ratings for the card, and you see there's a lot of ones. There's a few one star matches on the card. Some half star. I think uh, Luger Windham ended up actually being a three star, but this five star match was absolutely a five star match. I'll let David go into it. Flair comes out and he's Ric Flair. He is. <laughs> he's just Ric Flair. He's the god. Huge pop for Ric Flair because, I mean, even at 40 years old, I mean, this is kind of considered to be like, you know, a prime-ish era Ric Flair. He's still, I mean, he is five days away from his 40th birthday. Ricky Steamboat, a little bit younger. He's in his, I think, early 30s. And a lot of this, the beginning of this match is Ricky Steamboat kind of wrestling Ric Flair's match and winning. He's beating Ric Flair at his own game. He is trading those famous chops with Ric Flair, and he's winning. He is a little bit faster than him. He's a little bit stronger than him. He's a little bit younger than him. But finally, Ricky Steamboat gives him an opening. 
And then the dirtiest player in the game, he goes to work. He's raking the eyes. He's slamming him into the barricade. One of my favorite moments in this match, like the, the moment in this match where I was like, okay, this, this stuff is really, really getting good. So they're trading chops. He throws Flair into the turnbuckle. And Flair does that kind of flip over the turnbuckle. We've seen him do that sell over the turnbuckle a hundred times. And he usually ends up flopping to the floor like a dead fish because no one sells it like Ric Flair. Instead, he flips up completely over, lands on his feet on the ring apron, sprints to, I don't know if I've ever seen Ric Flair move this fast in my entire life. He sprints to the other turnbuckle, climbs up, does a diving crossbody, and then Steamboat rolls through for a two count. By this point, we're maybe halfway through the match. The crowd is going insane. Absolutely going crazy. Flair puts him in the figure four. He's grabbing the rope and he's working on the figure four. The entire crowd, huge, loud Ricky Steamboat chants. I mean, they are behind Steamboat, even despite the fact that Ric Flair is literally Ric Flair. And he is the most popular man in wrestling. Everyone loves him. And they were going crazy for him when he showed up. I mean, finally, the ref sees it, makes him break the hold. And then we just get near fall, near fall, near fall. Flair hits the huge Harley race vertical suplex. Kick out at 2.8. Big back suplex by Flair. Barely kicks out. Near fall, near fall, near fall, near fall. Keeps putting his feet on the ropes. Ric Flair is just, you know, cheating every little bit he can. Finally, we get Steamboat hits a big double arm suplex. Flair just barely gets his leg on the ropes. I mean, at the last second. He sells it perfectly. Steamboat comes off the ropes, hits the flying judo chop, building up to the finish. Crowd's going crazy. Hits a crossbody, but the referee gets in the way. As Flair goes down, the referee goes down. He can't count the three. Finally, the most clutch ref sub in history. Teddy Long <laughs> slides in at the right perfect moment. Ric Flair is about to put Ricky Steamboat into the figure four and wrench on him and get this one over with. But then as Teddy Long sliding into the ring, Ricky Steamboat grabs him, reverses the figure four into a small package and pins him in 23 minutes. And the new NWA World Heavyweight Champion, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Steamboat crowd goes crazy as they have been for the last like 15 minutes. Just an awesome, awesome wrestling match. Ric Flair is just so good. And if you need an example of that, I really encourage you to go back and watch this match because it's very, very Ric Flair. That being said, I know David just mentioned how old Ric Flair was, but he looks like an Uber athlete who also drank gallons of beer every night for 10 years or for 20 years. And I think the reason for that is because he did. I mean, you hear his stories about like how many women he slept with. Like he did that interview for, I think it was actually ESPN. And they were like, so how many women do you think in your lifetime you've slept with? And Ric Flair goes round about 10,000. And that, that's now like the enduring legacy I think of when I think of Ric Flair, but he, he sells so well, you know, the saying you never chop a flair, but Ricky Steamboat's going at him. He's chopping him back. I uh, David has always said that he wants that he became a wrestler so that uh, Walter would annihilate his chest. I, for one, would also like Ric Flair to annihilate my chest. Uh, so, Ric Flair, if you're ever listening to this, please come chop me. 
and and say woo when you do it. But I think that Ric Flair making it to WWE and becoming, you know, being so good there, I think people forgot how good Ricky Steamboat was. Yeah. And yeah. just how dynamic he could be. Um, I, I don't know if it was this match or I know they had as I know they had a lot of matches um where they were interviewing Flair about it and Flair was like, actually, Steamboat came to me and he was like, Hey, are you ready to practice this? And Flair was like, Practice? I don't do practice. And like Steamboat had written the match out already. So, you know, take that for how you will, but I think it shows just how cerebral uh Steamboat was to want to plan these matches out and make them so perfect. Well, yeah, I mean, very famously, his match with Randy Savage at WrestleMania three. Yeah, um, that's that's one I couldn't think of. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was a match that which is a famous match, considered one of the greatest matches ever at that point, was like they planned that out and like yeah. meticulously like rehearsed that match and like made sure that they had that down. I mean, that was kind of just how Ricky Steamboat went about things. Yeah, that's a, that's another really good match to go watch if you're wondering about the greatness of Steamboat. It's the Steamboat Savage match, also excellent match. The last thing I wanted to mention, um, and I know that he didn't win with the figure four, but watching it, it made me think. You know, a lot of people they saw him with the figure four again later on because that was a lot of people's exposure was, uh, you know, like when he was doing cage matches in TNA in like 2008 or whatever. Um, but like, but Flair never won with the figure four. That just never really happened. He was always winning by roll-ups or his gimmick was the dirtiest player in the game by doing something dirty. So even if he got the win with the figure four, it was because of some dirty tactic. And beyond that, he won with a ton of roll-ups. And actually, I think I think Savage Steamboat ended with a roll-up as well, if I recall correctly. Does that ring a bell to you, David? Um, I'm trying to remember. I don't know. There was another one of the matches with Steamboat in it that I'm thinking of that was an, also a roll-up. But I think WWE needs to go back and look at how the roll-up was used back then and try to incorporate that some more now rather than the way that they're doing it. Yeah. Steamboat Savage did end in a roll-up. Uh, Savage was going to scoop slam him, and then, again, kind of like this, Steamboat reversed him into a small package. Small package, yeah. That's yeah. what I thought. I, that's what I was thinking. So if you look at like how the storytelling can be done with it, great. But whenever the 24-7 championship is getting traded back and forth because of just random surprise roll-ups, I think it's totally lost its mystique and ability to sell a story. And I think they should go back and look at some of these matches for how to do that. Yeah. So before I go into my synopsis, I think um, the one thing I do want to mention at the top of this is that while my history of wrestling – is a little bit more abbreviated. I think just seeing the different eras between going from 2006, we see a Ric Flair match. Here we are in 1989 with a Ric Flair match. Just seeing the longevity of his career and the two types of matches he has put on in these back-to-back pay-per-views, I think that if I were to choose one true greatest of all time, the GOAT, I have to go with Flair. I think Flair's work on the mic is incredible. You see it all. You see it every time there was a promo. WCW '94 uh, Fall Brawl. He was excellent on the mic work there. I thought he drew the best out of Hogan, uh, selling his. He was selling his character. He wasn't relying on the woo to kind of break up his senses to give him time to think. He was incorporating it in meaningful ways. Here we see a very passionate Flair just going off the dome. Not a lot of people have the ability to bring the mic work like that. And then in this match, you see him go 23 minutes 
with Steamboat in a high-paced affair, seeing Flair and David describe this in great teeth detail, flipping over the turnbuckle, running along the apron, hopping up to the top rope, so and cool. then doing a flying crossbody. Ric Flair, at 40 years old, doing that, and then going forward, let's see, that's uh, tw- about 27 years, or no, 17 years, sorry, 17 years. math. Forgot you're a math that. You're a math major, Angelo. I can't talk in math at the same time. Give me a break. Uh, but seeing fast forward 17 years, seeing him in that match against Foley, where they are literally murdering each other with every weapon that they could find, wrestling a match with thumbtacks, wrestling a match while he's bleeding like a pig, uh, selling this crazed look in his eyes in this I quit match, and knowing that these two matches happened 17 years apart, and knowing that there's a whole lot more flair packed into those 17 years. The guy is incredible. The work yeah. rate is incredible. The way he sells, the way he is devoted to his character, similar to what I said with Lex Luger. I think the reason Lex Luger got over because he was playing a character who was him. Ric Flair at this time truly believed he was the dirtiest player in the game, that he was the coolest man to have ever lived, that he's just above everything. Because he was. Because he was. <laughs> and so I think if I'm thinking about greatest of all time wrestlers, I think numero uno has got to be Flair. And another reason for that is just because even when he was a heel, he was the face because people loved him so much. Yeah. You mentioned it, Ange. 17 years apart, the last two events that we watched, and Ric Flair both times had the best match on the card. And they were two (laughs) very, very different matches. But both times, Ric Flair had the best match on the card. And there's a reason for that. Because Ric Flair, so much presence, so much fire, and such a great knowledge of how to tell a story in the ring. And that is what he and Ricky Steamboat do in this match. And again, I mean, Jake, you talked about it. You can't, you know, write off what Ricky Steamboat did. You can't talk too much just about Flair and not give all the props to Ricky Steamboat, too. I don't know if there is... I mean, there, there are very few guys who I think were just... That's especially back then, where that smooth in the ring, everything he did looked great. The guy was a terrific worker, but beyond that, they were really putting him over throughout the, the throughout the event as like the hardworking blue collar kind of family man mm-hmm. baby face. And I, I do appreciate and, Steamboat's story with that because I mean the beginning of the match, he comes out focused early. Like this is business for him. He wants like this is a. I'm here to do my job kind of thing. I thought that was a good story to start off the match with. But they're they're selling it like this is the biggest match of Ricky Steamboat's life because he is trying to provide for his family. And you even see his son who uh, would grow up to become Richie Steamboat, a, a pretty good wrestler in NXT himself at one point uh, before he got injured and wasn't able to – had to retire. But he – they're, they're selling this like this is the biggest match of Ricky Steamboat's life. He's trying to provide for his family. And you can feel the emotion coming out of Ricky Steamboat with every single thing that he does in this match. And I think that is one of the things that sells this match even more and and adds to it that much more as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, going back to the synopsis, the chops both those guys were delivering to each other, I mean – you don't fake that sound. You you just don't. And you just hear them. Uh, Steamboat had a really good double chop when Flair kind of exploded out of the turnbuckle that 
Flair selling the impact of not only the chop, but when he goes to the ground. Uh, I like the double arm suplexes here. I thought that it's a cool move. We don't really see it much today, but I think it's a nice little, like, interesting move that I think should be incorporated a little bit more nowadays. I mean, we don't see it. It adds some diversity. It's never bad to have too many moves in wrestling. Uh, going forward, uh, you have Steamboat tapping in the figure four. So that was kind of weird for me. Because I know nowadays when we see a guy tap out, like Steamboat's tapping out. Back, uh, then, back then, the tap out wasn't a thing. Yeah, no. It's, I, mean, I, I, I gathered that. that. Like, this, was, this was years before the UFC was even, even existed. So like the tap out wasn't even a thing. People didn't really use tap outs to signal submissions for like, I want to say maybe until like, at least like, like in something like WWF, WCW until make maybe like Ken Shamrock started wrestling there. I think he might've been the guy who like brought in the tap out. as it, a thing. It, it was weird to watch. I mean, a lot of the, like, I have never know, not known a wrestling a WWE, uh, WCW where there hmm. wasn't a tap out and, and yeah. Steamboat here. I mean, it looks like he's tapping out to me, but obviously it's more of a, I give up kind of thing. It's like an, I quit sort of thing. You have to tell the referee that you don't want to continue. Um, yeah. Flair had a nice stalling suplex. You don't think of Flair as a power guy, really, but he has a stalling suplex here. I think it was when Steamboat was out on the apron, and Flair just kind of picks him up and does a nice little stalling suplex. Hmm. Um, Flair, obviously, using everything to cheat, putting his feet on the ropes for pins. I mean, diabolical heel things. Uh, Then you have the bridge out, a double arms. The bridge out, like, things that we're starting to see now. Like, we see that bridge out where... We have a pin cover. They're grabbing each other around their waist. And then you just see the guy from underneath bridge out and they get to the standing position, which I always – I'm a sucker for because that's just hmm. so much core strength, so much athleticism. Uh, but that goes into a double-arm suplex with another flare pin on the ropes. Uh, the flying cross body with a ref spot. I know Jake just mentioned that he hates seeing refs go down in one punch. This kind of follows that. And then reversing the figure four into the cradle for the win. I think that's just – Again, the story that this told, the emotion that you see on both these guys, uh, absolutely incredible. This, if if nothing else, if you're not going to watch any of the rest of this card, watch this Steamboat Flair match because it truly is a re- rewarding thing to watch. Also, Ric Flair looks a little bit like Ben Stiller in this match, so that's always enjoyable, too. Man, talk about remembering guys, man. Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller, that's a guy. Man. All right, well... We've talked so much about this match, and again, this is a great match. Really, if you haven't seen it, got to watch it for yourself. I'd say this is probably I, the first must-watch that we've had, like or like on this level. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent. I, I agree. agree with you. Hundred percent. I agree with you. So let's move into our two and a half marks. Angelo, do you want to start us off? Or should I, will, I count Rumble. I will start us off, and I I've done some reworking here. Um, the way I had it before, I think slided a guy a little bit, so I'm making some exceptions here. Great. Let's start off with the half mark. I think my half mark is going to go to Sting. Out of all the three early matches, his was by far the best. I think he has to play a lot in that. Yes, I'm a Sting mark. Yes, I am biased. But, I mean, he kind of sets the template for what wrestling becomes sort of here. I mean, obviously, Lex Luger's one style. The guy with the body who just looks like an Adonis. And then you have Sting, who's just able to do all these kinds of moves that previously were not around or just weren't involved with wrestling because this is a different style. He kind of starts that, so I'm going to give him the half mark here. 
the one mark I am going to give to Lex Luger too, because I th- I kind of enjoyed his promo they cut later on in the mat, uh, later on the card, just kind of that blue face saying that he's thankful for the people that believed in him. This means a lot to him. The match he has with Barry Windham again, it's another good story. Wyndham selling his hand injury helps tell that, even if the finish is a little bit weird. I think you see why Luger is a big deal in the 90s in that match. And then the two marks, I'm giving it to both Steamboat and Flair. I just, I, I initially had Flair as the one mark, but I'm like, man, both these guys put on an absolute show. Uh, they were, they had great chemistry in the ring. Uh, it had a lot more spots than the rest of the card. You could argue that there was more spots in that one match than there was on the rest of the card total. And it's just a barn burner of a match. And I think you have to recognize both those guys for putting on that kind of show for that crowd that rightfully lost its mind. So the two marks go to both Steamboat and Flair. You want me to go, David? Is that, does that I'll, please I'll, your hostly? I will go if, if, if you're offering. Because mine are kind of along the same lines a little bit. I, I have Sting as my half mark just because I thought he was the most impressive pure athlete. And even at this kind of relatively young stage in his career, you can really tell that there's a reason why they see him as a future superstar and that he becomes that future superstar. You can really see the blueprint there with him. Then they get my one mark to just the hair. Overall, I counted in the uh, original Midnight Express versus Midnight Express match, not counting the re- not, not counting the managers. Three out of the four wrestlers had blonde mullets. Oof! Big '80s energy. Incredible. <laughs> Bobby Eads was especially impressive. Sting has the bleach blonde mm. like flat top. I mean, obviously, like you know. Hawk had the iconic reverse mohawk, which was like his his trademark throughout his career. Michael Hayes looked w- with with his hair, incredible, just top notch stuff, beautiful. And then I mean, Flair of course, mm. immaculate. And then, as Angelo did, same for me. Two marks to both Steamboat and Flair. Flair, one of the great storytellers in the history of pro wrestling, and Steamboat, an unbelievable worker. I mean. It got me thinking about, we saw Fall Brawl 94, where Steamboat comes out and relinquishes the U.S. title to Steve Austin. That match before that, when he injured his back, was the last match he would have for 15 years. He retired. But then, if you remember, he came back in 2009, had a few matches, had one with Chris Jericho. And even 15 years later, and... You know, a terrible back injury, rehabbing from a terrible back injury 15 years later, he could still work his ass off. Mm. He came back at those matches with Jericho and looked amazing. Ricky Steamboat is one of the best workers ever. <laughs> so, as always, I went a little differently. So, my half, my half mark is going to the Ric Flair chop. And the reason why, and I didn't touch on this during the match commentary, but it's such a good transition move. It's, it pops the crowd every time, makes a great sound, looks awesome. You can use it both like when you're, they're in the corner. You can use it whenever you bounce them off the ropes. The Ric Flair chop is just forever ingrained as one of the signature moves in wrestling, and I love it for that. Uh, my one mark is going to go to the collar and elbow tie-up because every match had at least one, and I got so freaking bored of watching it. Like, 
and I know like, I was, I was kind of waiting on David to cut in and be like, Jake, have you ever tried to do a collar and elbow tie-up? And I'd have to say, no, I have not. So maybe I have nah, nothing. It's, but... it's super easy. Okay. It's, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's physical, it a, but easy. It is, a, it is a good hub to get into other chain stuff from, which is why everyone does it. Yeah, but like they would do it, and then they would go straight to a headlock for 10 minutes. Like, great. I, hey, I'm glad that you got there. That was my go-to um, move freshman year of high school. Don't mock it. <laughs> hey, and what was your record? I went 11-1 and one that freshman year. Oh, wow. <laughs> Next so year, not so much. My, <laughs> so my two marks are going to what I think was the greatest thing I watched on this pay-per-view. And that was Paulie dangerously warming up to wrestle. That made me feel so much better about myself. He looked like a six-year-old who just got his first boxing set for Christmas. And he opened it up. He threw them gloves on. He was so excited. His daddy put his hands up, and he's just swinging them like he's a, a cat pawing at something. It was adorable, and I'm so glad I watched it. No disrespect to Flair and Steamboat, but Paulie Dangerously's warm-up was even better than that match. Really, really glad that Paul Haven never tried to wrestle again. (laughs) (laughs) Except for that time that uh, Ryback chased him onto the top of Hell in a Cell. Yes, but Ryback was cool. (laughs) See our Hell in a Cell 2012 episode. (laughs) We're already referring back to old episodes, baby. I like this. We're now like, we've now watched enough stuff that we can like refer back to other stuff that we've seen on this show. It's great. Like we're already getting there. Um, so that will bring us to our last order of business. My favorite part. Let's get it. Hit the randomizer, boys. Tell me what you're hoping for. So I think what I'm hoping for, and even though there's like a very small chance this ever happens, I want one of the coronavirus era episodes or pay per views where there's just no crowd and seeing how the rewatchability of that goes. I, I I want some NXT. I am ready to talk about Johnny Gargano or Adam or, uh, Adam Cole or Tommaso Ciampa, one of those. Well, you guys swing and a miss on both of them. But I am excited with what we ended up getting. Survivor Series 1998. Ooh, this is a good era. Sold out Keel Center in St. Louis, Missouri. The height of the Attitude Era. And... The big event, a one-night single elimination tournament for the vacant WWF championship. We've got Stone Cold. We've got The Rock. We've got The Undertaker. (laughs) We've got Mankind. We've got Ken Shamrock. We've got Big Boss Man. I love Ken Shamrock. Everybody. Everybody. Guys, tune in next week if you want to hear me talk about how Ken Shamrock should have been pushed to the moon. To the moon. I am so happy we have some Stone Cold, like legitimate There's, Stone Cold. We're gonna have. There are fourteen matches on this card. Oh, wow! This is a Survivor Series that doesn't actually have a Survivor Series match. That's okay. That's okay. But it looks like some of these matches were like two minutes. We'll keep it moving. <laughs> All right. But, so tune in next week. We got a really good one in store. I am looking mm. forward to this one. Me too. Survivor Series 1998 on the Two and a Half Marks podcast. So for my friends Jake Long and Angelo and Glisa, I'm David Statman. Once again, thanks for listening. Oh.